0: I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, about everything for supply chain advantage. So let's begin. In this week's episode, I want to discuss, amongst others, the pressing problems That we face as supply chain managers and how to solve them. And I want to talk in particular about learning from failure or learning from mistakes. So, what are pressing problems? When it comes to business, we often think that we have many pressing problems. In truth, there will be just a few. These are the problems that will disrupt the business if they are not addressed. In the strategy literature, They refer to such problems as those that are critical. Identifying such problems is not always easy. Often, this is because managers spend more time doing than thinking. It is essential that time is set aside for thinking. Some time ago, I spent a day in London speaking with the then UK CEO of Diesel, the clothing retailer. And I asked him how he spent his week. At the time, I recall being surprised by the answer. I was expecting him to tell me what most other CEOs were telling me at that time, about how important they were to the success of the business, and without the drive and foresight, what a disaster it could be, along with the many managerial concepts and insights that they'd brought to enlighten the business. In the case of Diesel, almost none of this was in the answer I received. The most striking parts of the discussion focused on the many store visits made by the CEO incognito to understand the business and the competition. The focus on the failures and mistakes and what they'd done to identify causes and rectify them, what they considered to be the most threatening to the future of the business, and the way in which he regarded days spent at the headquarters in London as wasted days apart from the necessary team meetings and activities designed to develop his team. It was important to be active gathering data from observations about the business and talking to others about theirs. He also read a lot of business books alongside many about design. He spent a lot of time thinking about how to improve the business and had a good grasp of the end-to-end supply chain. When I came away from that meeting some years ago, I began to think more about what I'd learned from the interview that we'd participated in. One of the first things I did was to read more about failure and what can be learned from it. Many business and strategy books focus on success. The narrative is often a smooth passage from a sleepy start to an unfolding growth pattern by employing technical solutions, management techniques and a few four-box matrices thrown in. But this is far from the truth on the ground. It's one of those lightbulb moments when your experience is different from what you're reading about. There are books that cast light on the darkness, and one of those was something I regarded as a very strange book when I first read it, called The Goal. I think I picked up this book originally in an airport on a way to conduct a an assignment, mainly because I thought it was about football with its striking cover design. This book was an important find, although serendipitous, as it articulated in a short novel a story about a plant manager saving the business. As it unfolded, it was clear that the identification of the problem was the first step in a process to remove constraints. This, and a later book by the same author, Elihu Golrat, introduced me to something called the theory of constraints. It struck a chord with me as I had become familiar with the idea of constraints from my studies of linear programming methods, optimising specific objectives when I was at university. The basic concept is that a chain is no stronger than its weakest link. Throughput... Operational expenses and inventory are key areas of focus that need to be managed in supply chains. And these were central in this particular book. If you search for weaknesses, you will be able to identify the one or few that may be critical. Ongoing improvements can be realised by identifying limiting factors and removing them. Constraints are anything that stop the system from achieving the goal. The key messages from the Theory of Constraints are as relevant as ever. You may adapt and apply the theory to many different contexts. This tells us something that's important about our own development as managers and the fact that we need to be reflexive. And being reflexive simply means learning from our experiences, maybe our own and others, and through reading, but being a reflexive person so that we can be open to new things, new ideas, and develop our own way of being a manager. We know that reflexive managers learn from their mistakes. In developing processes and practices with the aim of improving performance, we learn to adapt and respond flexibly to the circumstances we are faced with. Resilience is the term that we use to talk about effective responses to bounce back from events that disrupt performance. We can draw analogies from sport, where high performance levels are expected by those teams and individuals that win prizes. To know what it's like to win, maintain fitness, skill levels, that enable us to compete, we have to practice regularly. We learn how to improve performance through reading and observing stories about other athletes who've achieved success. Often within these stories, there are moments of doubt, tales of endurance, commitment, mistakes and resilience. So it is in business too. If we want to improve a situation, we need to know reasons why. We may not be meeting our expectations or underperforming. We need to focus on the constraints that might be holding us back and we also need to focus on specific failures to understand why they happened and get to the root cause. It's necessary to understand mistakes in order to learn from them. When we solve pressing problems, we first of all have to identify the problem. We don't search for many problems, we search for the big problem that's causing an issue. Sometimes this is straightforward, as in the case of a particular supply issue. These types of problems come to us, rather than we go in search of them. The impact is immediate, the magnitude, the scale can be calculated, the solution is usually straightforward, such as change of supplier. Other problems might be latent Latent problems need to be identified in other ways. There are a number of tools and techniques that can be employed effectively to do this, such as DMAIC, D-M-A-I-C, the tool that many Six Sigma problem solvers use. It's an acronym to define, measure, analyze, implement, and control. We define the problem, we measure the problem, we analyze the problem, we implement a solution to that problem, and then we control, we watch that problem. And that's similar to the idea of SREDM, which I used many years ago quite regularly, which is another acronym, selecting the problem, recording the events through observation experiences identified in discussion with the team and so on examine and evaluate that problem, develop possible solutions, and after evaluation, choose one solution to implement. And then keep an eye on that solution by what we call maintaining to monitor the solution and its effectiveness. And of course, making adjustments as necessary. Other root cause analysis tools include the Ishikawa or fishbone diagram Used in quality management and those sort of things to identify root causes, along with simple questioning techniques such as the five whys, so named because the cause is usually identified inside the fifth why. So before you reach the fifth why, you're probably heading to a solution. So there are many tools and techniques that can help us solve the pressing problems. In a recent episode, I discussed predicting the unpredictable. Well, now I want to just return to predictions and performance and talk a little bit about forecasts and why they're so important in the digital world.
1: A capability to predict future events is a desire that many people have. In business, this is usually confined to forecasts. Sometimes we have what's described as an accurate or inaccurate forecast, meaning that the predicted outcomes are close or not to what we expected. Forecasting is most definitely an art and a science. If we gather too little data, we're unlikely to have a good forecast. And if we gather too much data, the same is true. Too much data are a worse problem than too little data in many respects because it's difficult to see the wood from the trees. We need enough data to yield information so that we can predict a future event. Belief in a forecast or method of forecasting is always that it is not scientific or scientific. We can follow the best available methods and still produce an inaccurate forecast. Nevertheless, forecasts are probably better than wild guesses. The biggest single practical problem observed with forecasts is one forecasters themselves treat their own assumptions as real. It always pays to step back from the brink of pure fiction and pinch yourself when building a forecast. Assumptions are just that, should not be treated as facts. We should make transparent our assumptions as that is the scientific thing to do. Then others can evaluate the quality of the forecast for themselves.
0: Nate Silver articulates this in The Signal and the Noise. In his example of the financial crisis, he says that we focus too much attention on the signal to tell a story we want to believe, rather than focus on how it really is. Uncertainty is the irreducible variable. The rapid growth of social media companies in the past 20 years or more has created a false image of simplicity when it comes to measurement and future predictions. At a simplistic level, the number of likes on your social media accounts for your last post on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn might lure you into thinking the next post will be similar. Indeed, these predictions are designed this way with underlying algorithms that lead you to your conclusion. These algorithms, of course, are not for you as an individual to reach such conclusions. No, they are the social media companies' means of predicting advertising potential. After all, this is how they make their money. You are simply data to oil the machine, which you do for free, and they give you free access to the machine in return. The real predictions are in their ability to transform that data into information to push up advertising revenues. If you look at the big data companies, Google started in 1998 and it has revenues of over $161 billion and $131 billion or more is advertising. Facebook started only in 2004, became a public company in 2011 and it has revenues over 70 billion US dollars. Amazon originated in 1994. It's got revenues of over 233 billion dollars and earns 10 billion or more from advertising alone. So if you think of these big digital advertising businesses, you've got Google at number one with about 32% of the digital advertising, Facebook at number two, 23% or more, and Amazon around about 4%. And growing. The point is, they're all growing and they're all looking for ways to grow. Mm -hmm. Forecasting is, of course, useful to predict demand when you've established patterns for products and services that you're likely to sell in future time periods that resemble the way in which they sold in the past. When systems are stable, it's easier to predict trends. When disruptions occur, and the system stability changes, it's much more difficult to predict trends and develop forecasts with any accuracy. Jay Forrester's work on system dynamics discusses this topic in detail. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, many of the earlier generations of supply chain students who played the beer game learned about system stability and the bullwhip effect, amplifying demand and causing problems in throughput with blockages, delays and so on, assumptions built into those forecasts need to be transparent to determine conditions under which they hold good. And that's the important thing for anybody when they look at a forecast. Question the assumptions, make sure they hold good in the current conditions experienced by the organisation, and that's a sensible way and a scientific way to use the forecast. (laughs) I came across a UK story this week, which I thought was uh, incongruous with the uh, hosting of the COP26 conference, which is about climate change. It's just a small piece about the disruptions relating to Brexit and the 1700-place lorry park-based just off the M20 in Ashford, Kent. And that particular lorry park is causing lots of problems with communities that surround the area who are protesting at its location and the fact that these lorries arrive through the night with lots of lights blazing and, of course, the associated pollution of uh, diesel, etc., in the area... Amongst other things, so uh, it just shows—it just goes to show how there are consequences for choices that policymakers have made, and the implementation of the practices, such as solving a problem somewhere and creating one somewhere else. Interesting for us supply chain observers. Mm-hmm. You may recall in the last episode I reported the cargo ship Express Pearl, which is registered in Singapore, sinking off the coast of Sri Lanka because of a fire. Well, the news right now, as this episode is going out, is that this is rapidly sinking. Hundreds of tons of oil are leaking from the fuel tanks, and it may well devastate local marine life. So it's quite a large-scale disaster. And this is happening in rough seas and monsoon winds just outside the port of Colombo. Efforts are being made to tow it to deep seas before it sinks to minimise the marine pollution. But the ship is badly damaged. The cause of the fire on board the ship was said to be due to the leaking of nitric acid, which the ship is carrying as cargo. And they've been aware of the problem since the 11th of May. It's got 25 tonnes of the highly corrosive acid on board. It's used in fertilisers and explosives. JBS is the world's largest meat processing company, and it's been the victim of a targeted cyber attack this week. JBS has 150 plants in 15 countries. It's a Brazilian company founded in 1953. It has 150,000 employees worldwide and it supplies supermarkets, fast food outlets such as McDonald's. And about 25% of US beef and 20% of pork is supplied by JBS. So it's quite a big player in the market. And it's disrupted about 20% of its US supplies. Cybersecurity is now a major issue in supply chains, and it's something that needs to have a concerted effort by all involved to ensure that these systems are protected as best they can be. Disruptions such as this have a very bad effect on the supplier organisation, the network, the retailers, and of course the customers. The computer systems that JBS used were hacked which temporarily shut down operations in Australia, Canada and the United States. The company believes that the ransomware attack originated from a criminal group most likely based in Russia, according to the White House. The attack could lead to shortages of meat and push up prices for consumers. These sorts of threats are becoming more regular, and certainly the President of the United States is putting policies in place to make the economy more resilient. These ransomware attacks are becoming quite common. The colonial pipeline situation, which was reported in this podcast a few episodes ago, is said to have cost somewhere in the region of four and a half million dollars US. It is clear from these examples that one constraint we can identify is the vulnerability of cyber systems. And so that's a, an issue that we didn't have to look for. It found us. It is, of course, a pressing problem for many organisations across the globe. <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode of Chain Reaction, and as always, I hope you've enjoyed the episode all about supply chain advantage, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode next time. Bye for now. See you next time. You've been listening to Chain Reaction, all about supply chain advantage, written and presented by Tony Hines.